Welcome to Connecting the Community podcast. I am your host, Marge Andre. I will be connecting you to people, organizations, and events that create community. I am creating this podcast in Richmond Hill, an eclectic and very culturally diverse community with lots of trees and streams and interesting people just up the hill from Toronto. On this podcast, I am very pleased that I am speaking with Tom Allen. Uh, We are going to focus our conversation on his upcoming show, J.S. Box, Long Walk in the Snow, happening at the Richmond Hill Center for Performing Arts on Thursday, January 18th. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Marge. Thank you. Oh, I'm very, very glad we found the time to uh, have this conversation. Tom, let's start by you telling us a little about yourself. I googled Tom Allen, and there are lots of you. So <laughs> tell me about you. You, this Tom Allen. You don't want to hear about the evangelical preacher in Ohio, or the horse dentist in Iowa, or the former mm. governor of Maine. Maine, or I think there's a football guy too. So yeah, so there's the uh, there's a Welsh stand-up comic. They're they're everywhere. Tom Allen's. Yes, um, but you. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I am the Tom Allen who uh, grew up in Montreal. I became a musician. I was uh, excited in high school in the high school band playing the trombone. I decided that's what I wanted to do, and I pursued that career uh, somewhat successfully through my 20s. played with some really great professional orchestras. I lived in Boston and New York and uh, had a couple of really exciting opportunities. I toured with a brass quintet across Canada for several years. And then as I approached my 30th birthday, Um, I began to realize that the storytelling I'd been doing with the brass quintet, brass players, you you typically get uh, very tired playing continuously. You'll notice in a symphony, uh, the the violins often play for a great length of time without stopping, whereas brass players always need a break. There's a physical factor there. You you just can't continue to play for half an hour. So uh, that's why brass quintets usually have somebody that tells stories. Uh, because they allow that break to be an organic thing. So I found that I really enjoyed that part of the work and decided to focus on that and uh, was rewarded quite quickly with a job at the CBC. And that was 33 years ago and I'm still there. Okay, very good. Uh, that wasn't a bridge version. I'm sure you could have gone longer, but thank you for that. that that's a good, well, very good and, synopsis. And the other, I suppose the other thing I should say is that in, as well as work at the CBC, I've nurtured over the last 25 years, uh, of, of authoring, I've written, I've published three yeah. books and I've written dozens and dozens of shows like this one. So writing and storytelling is, is really what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. I did look at your website. And I will put that in the podcast notes, but you, you are an interesting person who've done some really interesting things. So thank you. Okay. Now let's go on and tell us about this show that's coming up. Like I looked at it, uh, huh? what is it? So I think it really requires an explanation. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's part of a, a series of shows that I've developed with my partner, my, my wife, Lori Gemmel, who is a harpist uh, and, um, these shows all mix history and storytelling and music. So this is a story that I tell, and it is based in history and fact, and that story is illustrated with music. So sometimes the music being played is simply a continuation of the mood of the story I'm telling. Other times it's an illustration. So uh, Subha Shankaran is going to be singing with us uh, in Richmond Hill, 
And in the case of the, this particular show, J.S. Box Long Walk in the Snow, there is a female character in the story who is from history, and Suba essentially becomes that person. So it sort of steps into musical theater in a way. It's storytelling, musical theater, history, and we call them chamber musicals. Um, and it's, uh, we found it's a very effective way of, of uh, conveying both music and story. So there are five of us that do this show. Uh, in the case of Richmond Hill, it's Suba, who I mentioned, wonderful singer. Uh, Laurie plays the harp. Joe Phillips plays the bass and the guitar. Uh, and uh, our violinist is Erica Rom, who is an internationally recognized Canadian violin soloist. So the music ranges greatly from music from Bach's time, as, as far as we know, Bach would have heard it, to much more contemporary things that reflect uh, the nature of the story. You, I play trombone. That was the thing you that do I do play trombone. Okay, I do. I mean, okay. you know, it, it, as I'm sitting there on stage, it's kind of dumb if I don't. Uh, but uh, it's a it's really a, an extra thing that I do in addition to mostly okay. telling the story. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story? Like, you don't have to give it away, but oh, sure. Like, why? It, it, the question is like, why? What? What? Why? Well, tell so the this story? is a this is a a, a curious little um, wrinkle in music history, and there are many of these. The thing about music history, especially when we're talking about 1705, which is the year when this happened, mm. it's a long time ago. Yeah. And if you try to remember the specifics of what happened a few months ago from a day in your life, four months ago, you know, you, you'll probably come up with a few things. Maybe remember having a lunch with somebody, maybe you went for a walk, but then the rest of it, you'll fill in with uh, speculation on what you probably did. Because we don't hang on to those kinds of details. Now, the thing about this moment in J.S. Bach's life is it happened when he was just 20 years old. He was not yet famous. So there's no reliable account from the time uh, of almost any of the details. But in retrospect, when people looked back, the earliest history of this point of his life is about 35 or 40 years after the fact. People looked back and said, oh, that was an important thing. This must have been what happened. So all we really know is that J.S. Bach, in his first job, he was 20 years old, was hired as an organist in the town of Arnstadt. He took the job, he accepted the job as organist and looking at the instrument to make sure it was okay, didn't know until after he'd agreed that he was also expected to lead a group of university-aged students in what they called cantatas, kind of church pageants. He was supposed to make these productions with these students. He had no experience doing that. And further, he had no experience with bad musicians. And that's what these university-age students were. They were lazy. They didn't care. They had none of the musical heritage that Bach did, which was growing up in a giant musical family. At the time, the name Bach was synonymous with musician. So people in that area of Germany would say, we have a new Bach, meaning we have a new musician. So he, he came from a rich, multi-generational family that was all music-focused. So he really didn't know how to work with people that weren't from that background. And he was terrible. He was not a good manager. He was insulting, he was abusive. They hated him. There was another church down the street that had a nice old organist who was much nicer, so all the kids went there. And furthermore, most of these were older than him. They were probably 21, 22, 23, and he was just 18. They didn't respect him. And it was rapidly becoming a very, very bad situation. It came to a head in August of 1705, when Bach was walking through town in the evening and was ambushed by a group of six of his students who were so mad at him that one of them attacked him and hit him on the head with a big stick. But, and we know this because of court records, we know that is accurate. But Bach had been an orphan since age nine. 
Both of his parents died when he was nine years old, within nine months of each other. So he had to take care of himself, and he could. He was carrying a knife, and he pulled a knife, and he might have killed this guy. He might easily have murdered him, which, well, would not have been a good situation because everybody hated him. There was no doubt that he, he would be guilty, and there you go. That would be the end of everything that he did following this. Luckily, the friends held them apart. Cooler heads prevailed. But when it came to addressing this issue, and Bach went to the town council and complained, he said, you have to get rid of this guy. He attacked me. I'm not safe in this town. And they said to him, you're the leader. Look, we're paying you to lead this group. Don't come crying to us. Figure it out. And it was a real moment of reckoning for this young man who had to face that for the first time in his life, he was in over his head. He didn't know what to do. So he asked for leave and he walked. He walked 400 kilometers north, 17 days and nights, all the way to Lübeck, the port city on the North Sea, where he stayed for four months and learned from a mentor figure there who was an organist and composer who was 68 years old and who had learned all of these lessons of management and administration and inspiration and dealing with volunteers. So Bach stayed there for four months. Now, we don't know anything about specifically what happened to Bach in that time. All we know is that he left, he was gone, and he came back. But when he came back, he started writing these cantatas, which to this day are now revered. The very first thing he wrote after four months away is still regularly performed by early music ensembles around the world. So it really was a formative coming of age moment. These four months away changed him enough that he was able to become the composer that we revere 300 years later. So the show is about what happened? What happened in those four months? And we have a few clues, uh, but a lot of it is connecting the dots. And, and as I tell the story, I try to include the audience in that process of speculation, because as I say, there are very, very few verifiable facts. All we can say is these are the forces that were in play. This is what Lubeck was like. This is what these people around him were like. Somehow he became someone truly significant in the course of this time. I'm looking forward to hearing you have it performed, uh, you performing it. Now, what prompted you to do this story? Did someone say, hey, this is a good idea? Or did you go for a long walk and come up with the idea? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. I, mean, I, I came across this, this wrinkle. I mean, it, it, you know, it's written about in very spare terms. Mm-hmm. Um, in his obituary, you know, his, his son, his, his uh, middle son, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, is, is, we think that he wrote the obituary for J.S. Bach when he died in 1750. And he said, he included the fact that he traveled on foot. So the fact that somebody walked 400 kilometers may not have been that unusual at the time, but it was something enough, important enough, that his son noted it in his obituary. So it shows a kind of character. And that was, that was really intriguing to me when I first saw this. But the other part uh, is that we all know what that's like. We all know how if you're facing an emotional crisis, you're facing a situation where you're really beyond your capacity. And with COVID and strife in the world today, I think that we all know how that feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the first reactions is to go for a walk. It's what yeah. we do. We want to yeah. get out. We want to walk. We want to somehow clear our heads, move our bodies, get a different perspective, even just the sound of your footsteps in the snow is soothing and enough of a, of a, of a cons- consolation, enough of a thought process to begin to sort out your situation. So that to me was super interesting. The idea that 
this long ago, over 300 years ago, this person who in, in many ways, you know, we, we tend to turn these great artists of the past, whether it's Shakespeare or Van Gogh or whoever, we tend to turn them into superheroes. They weren't. They were people. They were people who had the same ordinary challenges that all of us have, plus some extraordinary abilities that helped them somehow get by. But it doesn't mean their lives were sweet and beautiful and without struggle. And he still had to he still had to go for a walk to try to figure out what to do. So the idea that in that thing that we've all done, that we all know, there can be a clue as to what it's like to be that person in that time, in that situation, that's really intriguing to me. It's something yeah. we can share with him. You know, we can okay. go for a walk and see how that feels. Okay, that is intriguing. And uh, yeah, just uh, when, when did you start with this idea? Like uh, it's been around for a long time. And uh, for me... Um, I, I guess the 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 moment that it started to crystallize was maybe three or four years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I was speaking with Jess Milton, who is a former CBC colleague. She produced Stuart McLean's Vinyl Cafe mm -hmm. for the last 10 years of that wonderful show. Yeah. And she, she asked me, uh, inspired no doubt by the fact that Stuart's career was launched uh, into a, a higher level by the Dave Cook's A Turkey story. She said to me, have you got a Christmas story? And I was like, no, I don't. And I thought, wait a minute. When Bach walked to Lubeck, he left in October, he came back in February. So he spent Christmas. He spent, he spent that beautiful winter season in this place that is famed for its romantic Christmas scenes. Like this idea of the Christmas market that we have, this heritage mm -hmm. of this Germanic heritage, mm -hmm. that's, all, that's totally Lubeck culture. It mm -hmm. was a city of markets. It was a city of these beautiful steep-roofed brick warehouses uh, it was a city that had a very long, deep um, merchant heritage because it's a port. And there was a salt mine a little further south in Lüneburg. So people would bring herring to Lübeck. They would salt it with salt from Lüneburg and then we sold and moved off. So it, it was very prosperous and very busy. The idea of going for him, somebody from a small town that had none of that, walking for 17 days and arriving in darkness of late November in this glittering port with lights and wealth and characters. And furthermore, they, you know, we tend to think of industrial places now uh, as not necessarily the cultural hubs, but, but they always were. You know, a, a place like Lübeck had princes and dignitaries and soldiers and merchants, and, and they all mixed in together. And they all went to church. Like, Organist was named Dietrich Buxtehude. And, and so just by going there, he would have been exposed to all of this beauty, all of this Christmas romance, all of this, this kind of wide-eyed, opening, glittering brilliance, you know, and it would have uh, informed everything about him. So once again, if you've had the experience of arriving at a new place, especially at Christmas time or in the dark of winter, and you see those glittering lights and you think, wow, what is this place? Well, that's, that's what he did. Okay. Um, have you been to Lubavik? I have not been to Lubavik. And uh, okay. <laughs> I know people who have. Uh, and the first thing that most of them say is, are you going to talk about marzipan? You have to talk about marzipan. It's very important. And I'm like, well, no, marzipan isn't part of the story. So that's one of the challenges I have is that yeah. Lubeckers are very proud of marzipan and the fact that they claim they invented marzipan. I kind of doubt it. I think it probably was invented at a place where almonds actually grow, you know, but mm. but they use it in this crisp, delicious, delicious Christmas bread called Stalin. Who is your target market for this show? Like who, who's really going to like it? Well, I think it's anybody that enjoys a good story, honestly. Um, it's not a, it's not something that you need to have a whole lot of experience with classical music to enjoy. Okay. One of, 
one of the things that I found is that people listen to music very differently when it's within a story. If you think about your reaction to a, a movie score, for example, um, you know, the, the music that we hear in movies, we're not necessarily aware of how differently it, we experience it because it's part of a story, but mm -hmm. it is, it's night and day. So in this case, uh, this is a, a story that connects together a whole bunch of different music. Um, so I, I think uh, really it's anybody that enjoys a good story. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it's, I, I'm very, you know, my whole career really is, uh, sounds like a grand kind of statement, but it's true. My, my whole career has been about demystifying classical music. Classical music has a, a whole lot of culture around it that can be really distancing to many people. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of sense that you're supposed to know something, you're supposed to dress up, you're supposed to know when to clap and when not to clap. And, and none of that has anything to do with what any of the people who created that music wanted. People like Bach or Mozart or Beethoven were in no way invested in any sort of elitist mm -hmm. uh, sense of propriety and decorum. You know, <laughs> in fact, it's so much the opposite. It's kind of shocking for us if we learn about the circumstances in which those people, those great composers first performed their music. It's, it's opposite from what we, we now think. So in the case of Bach and these concerts, they were in this giant cathedral, uh, St. Mary's in Lubeck, which seats 3000 people. It is huge. The inside literally is as big as a football field. And, and there are 24 different chapels within the church, different separate chapel spaces. And, and so for in 1705, an era before any kind of artificial lighting, and remember, Lubeck is a lot further north than uh, than Richmond Hill. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it got dark very early, it got dark mm -hmm. probably 3 p.m. around Christmas time. Sun didn't get up till sometime after eight. So these people are in candlelight in the dark. And, you know, we're, there's quite a bit of um, detail around what life was like in that place at that time. And we know that they had to hire extra police constables around these concerts because people were getting up to business in the back rows of the church in the dark. You know, so they had to have kind of a morality squad, which is not, I don't think, what most people associate the music of Johann Sebastian no, Bach. No, no. People getting it on in the back of the church in the dark, you know, at, at Christmas time. But that's what was happening. They had kids running around everywhere. The, the place was packed and crowded and noisy and thrilling. Nothing at all like the austerity that we tend to associate with that music. So, yeah, you know, that's a way of saying that this, this, this story and and this music is for anyone that okay. that and that enjoys a good story and good music. Okay, thank you. And I like the idea of demystifying classical music. I think yeah. that's a very admirable job goal to set for yourself. Thank you. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So, but um, how do you really talk about the the value of or the power of music. You know, it's, I ask a lot, many of the people who are musicians involved with music this question, and I'm liking the answer I get. So how would you answer that? The power of music. Um, well, so I, I have a, a whole alternate talk and program that I've been working on over the years around the, the idea of music being a proto-language. There's quite a bit of research that that says that in our evolutionary past, when we were tree-dwelling primates hundreds of thousands of years and maybe even generations ago, we used musical gestures 
to convey really fundamental information. So it's really hard with music to say specific things like, uh, have you got change for a 10? You know, you're trying to say that with music or, or that's, that's a Robertson screwdriver. You need a Phillips, you know, that, that those kinds of messages, really specific things. No, you can't do that with music, but with music, you can say, I love you. You can say, look out, there's a rock falling or there's a charging animal, or you can say, I will do anything I can to protect you. You're the most important thing to me. You can say those emotional messages with music way faster and way more effective, effectively than you can with words. So music is this vehicle to reach our deepest perceptions and our most primitive perceptions in a really profound way. And when those when those uh, musical messages can be conveyed along with uh, verbal with stories or with words that have an intellect that addresses our, our more you know, frontal lobe mm-hmm. as opposed to our animal brains. When those two sides of our perception can be equally accessed, it has an effect unlike anything else in life, I think. Like we all have those moments where mm-hmm. we get goosebumps, where music does something to us physically. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to explain, but I, I think it is that it's reaching us on our deepest, most primitive level and communicating with us on the same level that we remember from being an infant and hearing the sound of our caregiver's voice, you know, a, a feeling of comfort and safety. That's what music does at its best. So I think that's why it holds such an important place for us. And on, on one hand, as uh, we're going through economic uncertainty right now in a time of political polarity and great struggles you know there's a there's a part of society that says music becomes less important you know we can't we don't have time we can't we can't spend time on music things are too dire but on the other hand music is the one thing that can reach us in those times that a beautiful music piece of music a beautiful melody a song can make us connect with a really deeply needing part of ourselves even in the most dire circumstance music is something that can bring us a sense of community and a sense of love and a sense of belonging so i i think uh, as time gets more as times become more and more uncertain music becomes actually more valuable Woo! powerful and fast fascinating what you just said there so thank you for sharing that thank you i'm going to sort of change so the total of the questions I'm asking, this is uh, one of the first things I thought of when I saw the title, A Long Walk in the Snow, was mm-hmm. um, I thought of Pierre Trudeau's Long Walk in the Snow that happened about 40 years ago. Yeah. Is there any connection at all? Well, there is to me. I mean, I remember that too. I mean, I'm 62, so uh, I think you have to be yeah. above a certain age to remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure, that, the idea of going for a walk in the snow. But and I and I don't know whether uh, I first learned that expression with Trudeau yeah. as he was contemplating whether he was going to stay in office. And and you know, in many ways, that time, no matter how you feel about him, mm-hmm. uh, that that time uh, it was somewhat similar to what I'm talking about with J.S. Bach's life, even though Bach was 20 and Trudeau was whatever he was, 65 mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a time of reassessment it's a time of of crisis and the idea that you solve these unsolvable problems by going for a walk in the snow you know for jimmy carter uh in his very troubled time as president you know he's a good man trying to do the right thing he walked in the rose garden 
You know, mm-hmm. it, it's so, I guess there wasn't snow to walk in in D.C. at the time. But, mm-hmm. but you know, it's what we do when yeah. we're trying to weigh our options. So that expression, going for a walk in the snow, has always meant for me, you know, confronting something challenging. Um, and I don't know whether it existed as an expression before Trudeau. I suspect it did. Mm-hmm. But that was the, uh, you know, that's, that's where I first learned that expression. Okay. Thank you for answering that question for me. Uh, I... As I said, I did look at your website, and I see there's another Richmond Hill connection. Uh, you released this, a film last spring, The Last Curlew, mm-hmm. and it starts Richmond Hiller, R.H. Thompson. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about this film, and uh, do you know R.H. Thompson well? I do. I know him quite well. Um, we met through a, a group that used to meet together to... Well, play pool and tell stories and then they played hockey together for a while mm-hmm. and um and this was a pandemic project this film and uh, uh it, it was a story it was a show similar to uh it started as a show similar to the one that i've described to you with storytelling and music and dance mm-hmm. um uh, but when it came to uh, making a film version of it because it was a, there was a pandemic and we couldn't perform live i realized pretty quickly that this was not a job for me but for a, a real actor and I called RH and he said, yes, much hmm. to my, uh, my amazement. I didn't notice until your email that his own initials are also that of Richmond Hill. That was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a new, a new perception. But yeah, we, we know each other quite well. He's just released a book uh, by the ghost light, which is a beautiful thing. Hmm. I got a copy for Christmas. So I'm excited okay. about reading that. And we share an interest uh, in music and storytelling and, and their yeah. film. The Last Curlew, you can stream it at my website, um, yep. tomallen.com, and, and uh, he does a fantastic job. He's a beautiful, beautiful actor, which I think anybody who's seen his work would know. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for filling in that gap there. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, no, I think that pretty much covers it. It's it, this. Uh, I'm really excited to be bringing the show to the Richmond Hill Center for Performing Arts. I, uh, I had been to the Plaza Suite a few years ago to see my friend Stephen Fearing, who's a folk singer. He played a show there and I thought, wow, this is a beautiful space. And and when I was recently in Richmond Hill, I was reminded that it has retained its character as a, a town. It, you know, the, the danger with being this as close as it is to the, you know, the swallowing monster of the GTA is that it could lose its identity, lose its, its yeah. character. But I felt like it really has not. Like that yeah. strip, that main strip, and the, the businesses are all clearly to me local family businesses so that it feels like it's hung on to its identity which i think is something pretty significant and pretty rare in mm-hmm. in this urban environment so the idea that we could bring a show to this beautiful facility um that is in what still feels like a, a really intimate town i think that's kind of exciting so i'm i'm uh, really looking forward to it okay very good uh and I will put in the podcast notes how to get tickets. Uh, where on your website to, to go look at that? It right. is on uh, starts at seven thirty p.m. Uh, and uh, did want to say that if anyone's listening from Guelph, I've got a few friends in Guelph. I'm going to send this mm-hmm. podcast to. Uh, oh, great! You do go. You are doing the show in uh, Guelph, and then uh, Collingwood the day oh. after that. Yeah, wow! So okay. That, that weekend in January has three shows, all with the same crew with. Subha Shankaran and Erica Ram, Joe Phillips and Lori Gemmel and me. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, I do end the podcast with a guest question, response to this one question. Name one thing that you really like about this community. 
and you sort of alluded to it, but uh, and I recognize you really haven't been to Richmond Hill that often. But you know what? What is your what something that you really like about Richmond Hill? Yeah, I, I feel like it's it still knows what it is. You know that I mean, it sounds kind of sounds kind of uh, silly and obvious, but I can tell you a whole bunch of places I've been that don't know what they are anymore. With, with the forces of growth and yeah. globalism and and urban sprawl and whatever else, I mean, Richmond Hill has had an amazing uh, growth and prosperity over the last thirty years. Yeah, uh, and you can see that as you approach you know, from either side, from the 400 or the 404, either way you come in, you see this growth of this community. But when you get to the middle, it's a place that is a place. There's still, I mean, you think of, uh, it, it wasn't Dorothy Parker, who was it? Uh, oh, I'm forgetting her name, though. The writer, the writer from uh, Oakland, California, who, uh, when somebody asked her, are we, we going to go back to Oakland? She said, why? Why would I go there? There's no there there. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the great repeatable mm-hmm. quotes. Well, there's a, it feels to me there's a there in Richmond Hill. It still has, the focus of a place that knows what it is. And mm-hmm. that's uh, a, a pretty impressive and unusual. Okay. Uh, thank you for that perspective. It's when you live here, it's more difficult to have that sort of perspective. So thank you uh, for that. But uh, thank you again for taking the time to do this podcast. Looking forward to your show. I'm looking forward to having lots of my friends there at the show. So uh, yeah, it's uh, enjoy the rest of the holiday season and uh, we will we, we'll be in touch. Marsh, thank you. You've, you're you're doing an amazing job of connecting the community. I'm really glad that I uh, that I stumbled onto your podcast, and uh, mm-hmm. I thank you for including me. I'm I'm very grateful. Thank you for listening. I would very much appreciate you sharing this podcast. Please tune in next week as we continue to explore the community. Consider emailing me at marge m a r j at margeandre.com. I welcome suggestions for podcast guests. Stay well, stay connected.